0: This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Collection by Michael Strahan, available exclusively at JCPenney. Collection by Michael Strahan makes it easy to look good and feel your best no matter the occasion. The collection includes suit separates, sports coats, dress shirts, neckwear, belts, accessories, basics, denim, luggage, yeah, they got luggage, shoes, big and tall, boy sizes too. Collection by Michael Strahan is available exclusively at JCPenney. So visit a store near you to check that out or go to jcp.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Recently, I participated in the AOM podcast's first live audience interview. It took place at Magic City Books here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in March. And joining me for the interview was two-time past guest Adam Makos. Makos is the author of A Higher Call and Devotion, and was here in Tulsa to discuss his most recent book, Spearhead, An American Tank Gunner, His Enemy, in a Collision of Lives in World War II. Spearhead follows the story of Clarence Smoyer, a quiet kid from Pennsylvania coal country, becomes one of the greatest tank gunners in World War II history, and his life crossed paths with an enemy tanker, Gustav Schaefer, during the Battle of Cologne. Adam shares how he became interested in World War II history as a kid and how he found Clarence's story. He then gives us an engaging rundown of tank warfare in World War II and walks us through Clarence's hero's journey and the epic battles he faced with calm commitment and a love for his fellow team of tankers. We end our conversation discussing what happened when Clarence and Gustav recently met up as old men and the lessons Adam thinks members of the social media age can take from the veterans of the big one. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is spearhead. Adam, come on up. We're going to bring the show, the, the man of the hour here. We'll do an introduction with Adam. So give you a background with my connection with Adam. With the podcast, this is going to be my third time I've interviewed Adam about his work. He's a phenomenal guy. One of the things that drew me to Adam is his affection and his tenderness and his dedication to ensuring these stories of the greatest generation stay, stay alive, stay with us. And Also, what drew me to him is he's a young guy. He's my age, and he has that dedication to keeping these stories alive. And that's that's not too something you see too common. We'll talk about how he got started becoming one of the premier World War II historians at such a young age. So, Adam, thanks again for doing this. Really appreciate it. I'm really excited about this. So, for those of our, I know our podcast listeners are familiar with your backstory, but for those who are here are not, how did you get started? writing New York Times bestselling books about World War II? Because most World War II historians, they're baby boomers, right? They write their first book, maybe in their 30s, get their stride in their 40s, write their big one in their 50s. You're 38. This is your third book, you know, big book, already a New York Times bestseller number four this week. First one was a higher call. How did this happen? How did you get started so young doing this?
1: Well, Brett, uh, I always say I owe it to my grandfathers they were the ones who, who made it all possible. First, I, 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 I wanna just say thank you to you for being such a great friend over the years. But really, it's in this field, it's really cool to find an ally who, who appreciates what you do because a lot of times growing up, my peers in middle school and high school, I would talk to them about the Flying Tigers or about the B-17s bombing Germany, and they just kinda of look at me like I was speaking Greek. And so we've seen a renaissance in the last maybe 15 years of people coming to appreciate our World War II veterans. And it helps when there's movies like Saving Private Ryan. It helps when there's video games like Call of Duty. Everything contributes toward that. But at the same time, the art of manliness is, it's a culture that celebrates an old culture and the values of the 40s and 50s and 60s. and An era when things were... I don't know. I want to say, I don't want to say simpler, but what I want to say is I appreciate having your support from the beginning. It's great to be at Magic City Books. You know, I've heard about this bookstore for a long time. I mean, I live out in Colorado these days and this is a nationally known store and uh, Tulsa I'm coming to know. It's a beautiful gem. It's a hidden gem. I probably shouldn't tell people to move here, but they should move here because it's a tremendous, tremendous city. With good people. Let's get into the World let's, War II stuff. Let's get what into the World War II
0: stuff. So let's talk about this uh obviously you've written three books, but this wasn't your start with World War II history. You actually got started with this when you like you said in middle school in high school with the thing called valor magazine yes so tell us about valor magazine and how this segued into writing these books
1: sure my my grandfathers got me started when i was really young they would tell me their war stories one had been on b-17s in the pacific one was a marine set to invade japan and they used to show me their photo albums take me to air museums we'd watch war movies together it was interesting because neither of them had seen heavy combat in the war. So to them, the heroes like John Bazelon and Joe Foss and these World War II heroes, Gabby Gabreski, were their heroes. And so they became my heroes. I was very lucky I didn't have grandfathers that had fought on Guadalcanal or a place like that. And so growing up, I wanted to share that appreciation for these heroes. And the way I found it was on a rainy day had my first computer. It had this publishing software on it. Make your own newsletter. My brother, best friend, and myself, we said, what do we make our little publication about? We're going to be journalists. And uh, what we decided was not race cars, not baseball players, veteran stories. So we started interviewing our grandfathers, the men in our neighborhood. Next thing, it was in our cities, and it became a magazine. And now here we are, 20 years later, publishing books.
0: And what do these you know, World War II vets think when this you know, lanky middle schooler said, hey, I want to do a story about you. I mean, were they pretty receptive to it or are they kind of like, what is going on here?
1: They really were receptive because I think it was just rare to see young people caring about them. And so we had patrons. I almost say they're like patron saints, Dick Winters of the Band of Brothers, leader of the unit. You know, he lived in Hershey, I lived in central Pennsylvania, and I would go sit down with him and talk with him, and And this was a guy who would shut the door to most adults. He would say, I'm not home, I can't sign your autographs, I can't write letters to you, because he was his public figure, but he said, I'll let you in. And so, from the guys at the top, like him, I got a letter from Bob Dole the other day, George Herbert Walker Bush, whether you're talking about the highest of heroes, or the guy who was the local mailman who flew B-24s, they opened the door and they said, let's talk. And how did
0: your work with Valor Magazine with your brother? How did that transition to writing these big books, these epic, you know, sweeps of you know epic stories that you found?
1: Well, the magazine work was the training grounds, and the way I learned to write. A lot of people ask, you know, did you take English classes? in college. No, I studied marketing. That was my backup because I kind of never thought that this would happen. You know, I hoped it would, but that was a backup plan. Go work for a marketing firm somewhere. And um, the way I learned to write was I would write these stories on the weekend. I'd bring them into my English teacher in high school, and he would just cover these things in red pen. Adam, you know, you should write, you know, would versus should. You should write shall versus this. You know, and and he just ripped my work to pieces every single time. And I tried to get better learning through mistakes. And I think that's the way a lot of life is. I found failure, because I've had books that didn't succeed like I thought. Failure can either break you or you take the lessons from it and you come back stronger. And that's what we just did with Spearhead. So let's talk about your first book,
0: A Higher Call. How how old were you when that came out? Because that was the thing that put you on the map.
1: Yeah, 32 years old when The Higher Call came out. It went right to the top of the bestseller list. I was very lucky because Franz and Charlie lived an incredible life. I mean, again, it's the story of the American bomber limping home over Germany. First mission for the crew, 21-year-old pilot at the controls. Charlie Brown is just sweating trying to get his crew back to England. He flies over an airfield. German fighter pilot Franz Stiegler takes off, needs one more kill, and he's going to get the Knights Cross. And instead, he decides to spare this bomber when he sees it's defenseless. I mean think how good that story is I mean it sometimes the writer is important but sometimes the meat the story is what carries it
0: and through all your one thing I've noticed I've noticed a unifying ribbon or thread through all your books correct me if I'm wrong but like what do you think is the unifying theme through all the books like how do you decide because you've talked to all these veterans and they all have amazing stories but how do you decide this story this this needs we need to dedicate an entire book to this Well,
1: there's always these pieces you look for, and it has to have a deeper message. A Higher Call was about two men from different sides who became brothers, Franz and Charlie. Devotion was about Tom Hunter and Jesse Brown, two men from different worlds, one black, one white, who became wingmen. I love those stories where there's humanity in the midst of war. I don't want to write about the World War II veteran who got the Medal of Honor for killing 200 Germans, and that's what he did. He saved his friends. I want to write about the times when humanity triumphs and if i can find those stories when it's about more than just the body count when it's just more than the planes that are shot down it's more than the records when it's about people changing and people realizing that growing as 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 heroes i love to watch somebody grow into a hero and i love to watch warriors put down their swords mostly as old men and come together and say you know we've got to steer humanity in a different direction if we can
0: let's talk about your latest book Spearhead, right here already. Number four, New York Times bestseller. Last night at dinner at the tavern, you tell me you got an email. Fourth print run, which is phenomenal. When did it come out? Came out February nineteenth. So barely two weeks okay, ago. So it's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's fantastic. Big success already. How did you find the story about Clarence and his? Uh, I mean, because he's I would say one of the probably one of the best gunners in World War II history. The way you describe him. How did you find this story?
1: I never thought lightning would strike twice. And this story is on level with a higher call. I got a tip from a college buddy. He said, there's a World War II hero living in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and nobody knows it. The only reason my buddy knew it was because when he was a kid, he did his Eagle Scout project. And he went door to door interviewing veterans to try to preserve their stories. That was his project. So he knew this guy was there. He found him. The, his this veteran's neighbors didn't know he was there. His kids didn't know what he had done in the war. He was a mystery. But back in World War II, he was famous. He was known as the hero of Cologne. He was known as one of our tank aces for destroying five German tanks. He was this 21-year-old corporal who led the U.S. Army into the biggest battle of the European War, the biggest urban battle, the city of Cologne. So he had a remarkable hero. I knocked on his door, and Clarence Smoyer. He answered, and he invited me inside, and sat down at the table. And the more he told me about his work experience, the more I knew those pieces were there to make a book.
0: Is that how like most of these stories, like this kind of fall into your lap? Or do they, I mean, do the stories find you or do you have to proactively go find the stories?
1: It's a little bit of both. And I don't want to get preachy, but I do feel that there's a bigger purpose at work because I can't tell you how many times I've seen a story and I've chased it. Oh, I'm going to go up to this veterans reunion. I'm going to talk to everyone I can And then I find out the heroes are all gone, or or it falls apart, or the guys are tired of talking. I've had more books fall apart than have succeeded. And that's the greatest thing ever, because I look at the ones that have fallen apart, they weren't meant to be. The ones that do work, you know, they say, don't beat down the doors, walk through doors that are open to you. And so my best books have felt inspired by something bigger than me. All
0: right, so before we get into Clarence's story, and also some of the other characters in the book, let's do a little bit background about tank warfare in World War II. Because I'll be honest, before I read Spearhead, I didn't really know much about tank warfare. Most of the World War II stuff, when you read it or you watch the movies, is always about the planes, right? It's uh, everyone, like you watch the movies, everyone would sign up to be a flyboy, And you see Rosie the Riveter working on a B-52 bomber. So tanks never really captured my imagination. But after this book, I was like, this is amazing. So what was the role of the tank for the americans in world war
1: ii well the role of the tank i was surprised because this was an education for me too i'd always written the aviation stuff and i was surprised to find i always thought our shock troops were the 82nd airborne and 101st a lot of times they were put on the front lines they were dropped behind the lines and then they would hold out but who was really responsible for cutting through the german lines for hammering their way through it was these armored divisions. There were two heavy armored divisions. One was the second armored division, Hell on Wheels, that fought in Sicily and then up into Normandy. The other was the third armored division, Spearhead. Now, i had never heard of the Spearhead division. i had heard of those other great ones, but this was a division that lost more tanks than any other division in World War II American. It had lost more men than the 101st or the 82nd Airborne. This was an unsung division that had actually seen Incredible combat. The reason they weren't so well-known is because this armored division would pierce through the enemy lines and they'd keep running. They were specialists at deep drives behind the lines, just sowing mayhem. And there's stories of them being deep behind German lines and German soldiers are walking down the street. And next thing you know, they just drop their rifles when they see this armored convoy race by. But the unit was moving in radio silence a lot. So they weren't sending dispatches back. The journalists weren't they were secretive units. So Patton's Third Army, everybody knew where Patton's Third Army was. Everybody knew what Patton was doing with his with his ivory pistols. But the Third Armored Division, this heavy armored division was running silent. And for
0: most of World War II, what was the, the primary tank that the Americans used?
1: The Sherman. We might recognize it from the movie Fury. It's the only tank movie you can really point to. The Sherman was a great tank in 1942 we sent it into Africa with the British first. They loved it. It was knocking out tanks at El Alamein. And the trouble was the Sherman stayed the same, 42, 43, 44. And we're sending them into Normandy. And we've got the same 75 millimeter Shermans going into the hedgerows. And suddenly they run into this German tank, the Panther. And then they run into this Tiger tank. And we realized that the Germans had been up-armoring their tanks, up-gunning their tanks, and ours were staying the same. What was going on? I mean,
0: why? Why was that? Because I, from my understanding, you know, Eisenhower and Patton, even as World War One soldiers, you know, just right out of World War One, they they saw that the future of warfare was tank warfare, and that they wrote all. I remember they wrote all these papers saying we had to upgrade our tank war. You know, the, the tank battalions and all those things, and they got laughed at, and they told them, you know, people their uppers, you know, the people above them said, don't talk about this anymore. So why were the Americans so reluctant to upgrade? the tanks, even though they become such a vital part of the war effort?
1: Well, it was part of the proximity where the war was fought. We had to ship everything over to Europe. We weren't manufacturing our tanks in England or France or anywhere. So we had to ship everything. You wanted these medium tanks, lighter ones, are even better. You don't want to be loading up your ta- your troop transports with heavy tanks. And the Sherman worked for Patton. I mean, it was reliable, it was fast, it could move and make these deep drives. So they were they were seeing the strategic use of it. We'll take eight Shermans to tackle one Panther. Okay, we're all right with that. Now, the crews who had to do that, they hated it. I mean, suddenly they're being asked to hold their fire and try to get around the sides or the back of the enemy. That was considered like a death sentence. But from a strategic level, yeah, the Sherman tank worked fine. The Germans at the end of the war even had a saying. They would say, one of our tank is better than 10 of yours, but you always bring 11.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about the tank crew. Like, How many men were were to a tank? What did that look like?
1: Sherman Tank had five men. In fact, the German tanks had five. You had your gunner and you had your loader. You had your commander. That's the turret crew. Then you usually had a driver and a bow gunner. Bow gunner in the German tanks was also the radio man. So you have five guys. And in Clarence's case, this was his family. You know, he used to say, "We're we're a family locked in a sardine can. And they were his best buddies. Now, when I met Clarence, he had these thick glasses and he's this robust and he was just this gentle guy and he would sit down in the chair and tell these stories. And I wondered, how could this guy be possibly America's most lethal tank gunner? And I found out he did it because he loved his buddies. He knew that if he missed, someone was going to die. Statistically, when a Sherman tank was hit, one man was going to come out dead. Another was going to come out in pieces, wounded. And he knew each time that roulette wheel was going to spin if he didn't shoot first, shoot straight and not miss. So he was a great gunner, not because he wanted to kill more of the enemy than anyone else. He was a great gunner because he cared about keeping his buddies alive.
0: So you mentioned the Panther and the Tiger were probably superior, there were superior tanks to the Sherman. What were the limitations of the Sherman? Like why why did it
1: become, why did so many people die in the, when they were, you got assigned to a Sherman? Well, one of the reasons is Well, the armor, the Germans just built these bigger guns, and so their 75-millimeter gun on the Panther, you know, it was almost twice the size of our shell, packed full of powder. It was called a super-velocity gun, and it could literally shoot through one Sherman and into a second. That had happened in Normandy, and in the Battle of the Bulge, there were instances where a Sherman was parked on one side of a house. A Panther on the other side of the house would put that shell through both walls of the house and into the tank and knock it out. So the trouble really was, um, they just kept building their armor and building their guns and we kept ours the same. So it was 1942 technology fighting a 1944, 45 war. And
0: you, you talk about in the books, there was actually journals that went out to Europe and they interviewed people, guys on the Sherman tanks. And they talked about complaining about these things are under armored and like, we're actually putting on our own armor on the tanks. And it reminded me a lot of what was going on during the Afghanistan Iraq wars with the Humvees, where you read these stories, you hear these stories of soldiers having to put body armor and body plates on the Humvees because it just wasn't enough to withstand the IEDs. So tell us about like that. I thought that was really interesting.
1: It was amazing. Coming out of the Battle of the Bulge, we lost so many tanks. We were borrowing them from the British in order to go into Germany. And the losses were so heavy. And they, here's what some of the guys were saying. You know, the, our Stars and Stripes reporter caught up with some of them. And he wrote an article called Shells Bounce Off Tigers, Veteran U.S. Tankmen Say. And this is what they said. A tank commander said, we're just out-tanked and outgunned. that's all. We don't mind the lack of armor on our tanks as much as the lack of firepower. But it's mighty aggravating to let fly with everything you've got and just have the shells bounce off the front of the Jerry tanks. Now, his bow gunner concurred with him. He said, don't misunderstand us. All we want is a better gun. And we'll be ready to tackle any of them their company commander. Our morale would be a lot better if there weren't so many cock and bull stories in the papers about how our tanks are world beaters. (laughs) We lose four or five tanks and then the boys on the busted up tanks have the guts to go out and do it again. And so it was a lot about the courage of the individual tanker that kept them going, but also the men took precautions. In Patton's army, they were cutting the armor off of knocked out German tanks and welding it to the front of their Shermans. In other armies, they were taking concrete and making three or four inches of concrete armor on the front of a Sherman. Others were putting baskets filled with sandbags, steel baskets around the tanks. It was just like Iraq, just like the striker vehicles, just like the Humvees being armored in the field to try to get our guys through.
0: So the Sherman was the main tank for most of the war, but they introduced a new tank. Finally, the Pershing, how did the Pershing change the game?
1: This was exciting because I had had never heard of the Pershing before this. I knew it existed in the Korean War, but its World War II use was a mystery. Well, Clarence was one of the Pershing gunners. What happened was the army decided when they read those articles, like we just quoted in Stars and Stripes, Eisenhower and the brass back home, there was an uproar. You know, the people in the States were saying, wait a second, I thought our boys had the best of everything. And so they decided to ship these new tanks over that were coming right off the assembly line. The first 20 Pershings, they shipped right to Europe untested. The next 20 Pershings, they shipped to Fort Knox. They would test them there. So Clarence Schmoyer got one of these 20 new super tanks, and he it was his job to test it on the field of battle. It had a 90-millimeter gun. It was lower and wider. It was like the German tank's lower profile. It almost looked like a German tank, and it had an automatic transmission so they could back out of a, a bad situation. It was It was state-of-the-art battlefield equipment. The downside to it was when Clarence and his buddies are celebrating this tank that is going to bring them through the war, their commander comes up. He says, there's one problem. You are leading every attack now. Best tank goes forward. And at first that was hard for Clarence to stomach.
0: Okay, let's get into Clarence's story now. At what point in the war do you pick up with Clarence and his crew?
1: Well, we meet Clarence in, in this book. I don't teach you about where he came from and we don't go into how he grew up and the lessons he learned from his grandpa on his knee. We go right into the battle. So we meet Clarence when he's reloading his tank outside of Mons, Belgium. It's during the breakout from France. We're driving the Germans out of France three months after D-Day. And Clarence is getting ready because there's a German army coming at him. And he's a new gunner. Clarence at first had this hesitation to become a gunner. Again, he was this gentle giant. He was happy being a loader. He just like shoveling the shells in the breach, letting somebody else pull the trigger. But they discovered that he had a hidden talent. Back during the, t- the training up for, for France, the army had taken their unit to the seacoast of England and they set these targets on the dunes about a thousand yards away and the gunners were blasting away at them. And then they said, wait a second, what if our gunners get killed? The loaders need to know how to shoot. So they all switched seats and they had a competition. The loaders were all gonna shoot at these thousand yard targets and Clarence hit it eight times in a row. Nobody else did. And that night his crew got a magnum of scotch and that was their reward. And his commander, Paul Faircloth, said, as soon as we uh, have a chance to change up the crew, you're going to be our gunner. And for Clarence, that was the worst praise he could have ever gotten. He didn't want to pull the trigger, but he had this innate ability and didn't want to let his buddies down. It was that simple.
0: So did he decide, like, did he, when he signed up, did he sign up for the army did, or did he get
1: drafted? He was drafted. He's the coolest hero. He's a corporal, the whole story He's 21 years old. He got drafted. He got dragged into it. And the army saw that he had taken a uh, class in engine maintenance after high school at a local airport. And they said, oh, great. You've got some experience. You're going in the mechanized forces. And so so that was it. But he grew up impoverished. Clarence used to, at night, go around. When other kids were going to baseball games or football games, while other kids were going to the soda fountain, he would take candy bars, Hershey bars, and go door-to-door selling them to help raise money for his family because his father was a CCC worker. His mother was a housekeeper. They were poor in a poor time. And that's where he developed that protective nature. I have to take care of my family because no one's going to take care of us. How old was he when he got drafted? He was probably about 19. Wow. So like, at, at this point in the story, how old was he? Like 21? 21 when he hits hits battle.
0: Yeah, I always, whenever I read these World War II or even World War One stories, you forget how young these guys were because when you watch the movies... Like the actors are always in their 30s or 40s. Or if you watch the John Wayne movies, like John Wayne's like 50. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) He's He's timeless.
0: Right. Um, But these, these were kids. I mean, these were just like, they're right out of high school.
1: I feel like no war movie has ever made it right. I mean, if you saw Fury, Brad Pitt is probably, you know, 45 years old. And you've got Michael Pena, probably same age. You've got John Barenthal. You've got Shia LaBeouf. You've got only, the only guy who actually fits the cast is Logan Learman. And even he's probably older than they were. So you got to imagine a crew full of Logan Learman's uh, all 19, 20 years old. It's it's quite s- stunning, really.
0: So let's talk about this point, sort of a turning point in the story with Clarence. So he was a gunner, having a lot of success. They get to the Battle of the Bulge. They were part of that. How was how the Battle of the Bulge like a turning point for this story here?
1: Well, it's a turning point because... In the Battle of the Bulge, we won, but in some ways we lost. Uh, we stopped the Germans. Clarence and his guys were at the deepest part in the Bulge. They held the line. You know, they, they, they were enough of a buffer, but they were still unable to go against these Panthers that would come marauding down the road. So we watched tank after tank in the Bulge get knocked out with our guys simply overwhelming them with numbers. We weren't really beating them one-to-one. So we came out of the Bulge. Everybody was kind of discontent, fearful. Because, you know, we won the battle, but now we had to go into the Third Reich and it was going to be even worse. And that's how he got the purging, February 1945. He test fires it for the first time. The army, everybody behind him suddenly believes they have their savior. They have the guy who's going to lead them into the biggest battle of the war, the city of Cologne.
0: So let's talk about another character you follow throughout the book. This is a German, a young German tanker named Gustav. Tell us about Gustav and How and then how we'll talk about how Gustav and Clarence's Clarence crossed paths.
1: Well, we follow a German in this one, and another one of those one in a million stories that I'd have a German to talk about. His name's Gustav Schaefer. He grew up on a farm in northern Germany, impoverished, just like Clarence. A lot of people were in the Great Depression. He used to work sun up to sundown, and sometimes his family would work the fields by the light of the moon, harvesting rye, and they had no radio, they had no lights. His hobby was riding his bike 20 miles to the railroad tracks to watch the trains go by on the Hamburg to Bremen line. And so that was his dream, to be a locomotive conductor. And it was really cool to see Gustav. Again, he's this little 18-year-old tank radio operator, bow gunner, but he was just a kid, little blonde-haired kid, barely five foot, and his father gets drafted and sent to the Eastern Front. The next thing, they call Gustav, and they take one look at him, and they know he's going in the tanks. But his family had this really cool tradition they, each German farm got a POW, a Russian, captured early in the war because there was a manpower shortage. And so something that, to me, told, told me that Gustav was a worthy character was the way he and his family treated this Russian. This Russian would go out and work the fields all day, right alongside of him. And at night, there was a rule. Before the authorities would come and bring the Russian back to the POW camp where he was to spend the night, the farm family was supposed to feed him but they were not allowed to feed him at the same table that they ate at. He had to sit in the corner at his own table. They couldn't break bread together, literally. And Gustav and his mother concocted this plan where they set up a table in the corner. They would set the cutlery there. They put food on the plate, but then the Russian would eat at the table with them. That was in case that knock came at the door. And when the knock came, the Russian would run over and act like he was sitting there all along. But they said, he did the same work as us. He should be treated the same as us. Didn't matter if he was the enemy a year earlier
0: throughout the story. It seemed like the way you described Gustav, he was kind of reluctant. He was a reluctant fighter, like, like Clarence. How, how did he feel about fighting for the Nazis? what was, I mean, did he believe in the cause or was it just one of those things he just got drafted into and he had to do it? It,
1: it would have been probably the most terrible situation to be in that, in his shoes at that time because Stalingrad had, had been lost. So they lost a massive army there. Africa had fallen. Sicily had already been invaded. The uh, allies were in Italy. There was no doubt that this storm was coming and it was going to crush his country. Gustavo, though, felt this duty, the same duty he felt to his farm, the reason he never went and became a locomotive conductor. He was just a farm kid. He felt this duty to his family. It was like, this storm is coming from both directions. We're going to get crushed. And what is my job now? Is my job to protest? Is my job to hide? Or is my job to go out and fight as long as i can to keep the misery away from my people as long as i can and so he's fighting under the wrong flag for for the bad guys and yet at the same time in his mind he's keeping the pain away from his family that's impending
0: we're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. So we've had guests on the podcast to talk about networking. And one thing that they've all said that stuck out to me is that if you want to have a really effective network, a network that helps you advance your career, you need a lot of weak ties. Now, weak ties are not close friends or family members. These are friends of friends, acquaintances, et cetera. And one way to increase the number of weak ties in your network is to use an app like Shaper. Shaper is the number one professional networking platform that uses your experience, interests, and goals to help you make the right connections. Whether you're looking for investors, a co-founder, a new job opportunity, or just inspiring conversations, Shaper can connect you to professionals who truly want to share tips and help. Here's how it works. You sign up, you tell what you want. I've got an account on Shaper. It's pretty cool. Each day, it suggests 15 people with similar goals and interests for you to meet. Then all you have to do is take a few minutes to swipe through your daily profiles. Once you find a connection, set up a coffee with some people who stand out. If you're a professional, you got to have this app. It's going to help you increase your network. So you can download the app today or check out Shaper online at shaper.co. Here's how you spell Shaper, S-H-A-P-R.co not.com.co, Shaper.co. To learn more about Shaper, you can download the app on any of the app platforms and improve the way you network. Also by Capterra. Remember 1989? No, I'm not talking about Taylor Swift's album. I'm talking about the year the World Wide Web was invented. We've come a long way since then. So why does it feel like the software you use every day at work is stuck in the past? Take a leap into the future by finding the right software for your business on Capterra.com, the leading free online resource to help you find the best solution for your business. With over 700,000 reviews of products from real software users, Capterra is everything you need to make an informed decision. Search for more than 700 specific categories of software from project management to email marketing. No matter what your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. And I've used Captera. I'm a small business owner. We only have three full-time employees here at the Art of Manliness. So I have to use software to do more with less. And finding software solutions has always been a pain because like you find something on Google, you think it might work, but you're not really sure. What I love about Captera, you can look at the reviews from actual users, to see if that solution is the thing for you so you're not wasting money. You can visit com slash manly for free today to find the right tools to make 2019 the year for your business. It's com slash manly. Captera that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash manly. And now back to the show. And yeah, it all goes back to family, that idea. You're, you're, not, you're fighting for not your country. You're fighting for your family, whether it's your literal family, in Gustav's case, or for Clarence, the guys that he rode in the tank with.
1: Exactly. And that's what makes these guys so interesting to root for because... You don't want Gustav to die. You want him to get through these battles. And we pick him up where he's in a Panther tank in Luxembourg and an American army is closing in on him. And we follow his first battle. We follow when he loses his Panther tank and then he gets these orders. You have to go out at night and destroy your tank because your tank didn't burn. And If the Americans take that tank, they're going to turn it around against us. They're going to use its technology. And so we get to watch this 18-year-old kid creeping through the moonlit fields, just like when he was a kid, he used to work in the fields. Now he's creeping through with a satchel charge And he's got to sneak up through American lines to go destroy his own Panther tank. And he didn't have a chance to say, no, this is one of those, you go or we're going to shoot you. And so you see that this kid is thrown in a cauldron pretty quickly.
0: So let's talk about the moment when Clarence and Gustav cross paths at this epic battle, the Battle of Cologne, which you mentioned last night, today is the 75th anniversary
1: Of that battle? Today is uh, almost. Next year will be 75th. This is 74th. And again, the largest urban battle of the war. The Battle of the Bulge was the largest um, in Europe. Largest urban battle in Europe is Cologne. And Clarence is leading the army in. They had to choose. What tank is going to lead us through the gates? Well, it's the Pershing. It's the best tank. And Clarence, by then, had accepted his role. He, He put it to me. He said, we have the biggest gun. We belong out in front. It was just that simple for him. So he leads the way through and an army cameraman follows him every step of the way. They want to show the folks on the home front, we're going to take Germany, we're going to end this war. The goal was to capture the bridge over the Rhine, but the Germans blew up that bridge on the second day of the battle. We knew we weren't going to take the bridge, but we had to still take Cologne. It was known as the fortress city because Hitler had ordered it fortified. And to be a tank gunner leading the way into Cologne, pretty nightmarish because you don't have to just look left and right. You have to look up. There's German soldiers with Molotov cocktails. You have to look down. German guns dug in at basement level. Cannons, 88s that you could drive in front of and boom, you're gone. You had to worry about German soldiers with Panzerfaust coming out of the doorway to your left or your right. And a Panzerfaust could poke a hole into that Pershing tank and all that hot molten metal is going to bounce around and is going to turn you to, to shreds. You also had to worry about turning the wrong corner and running into a German tank like Gustav's. And so... It was a nightmare city block by block and it was fought with the armored infantry. These guys who were called does like doughboys. boys and they would clear to Clarence's left and right. But there were times when the does even had to drop back and say, go forward alone because there's a German tank out there.
0: So Clarence is there, he's driving and this cameraman's following him and he has this epic showdown, a duel. It's a
1: the Pershing versus a Panther. How did that, what happened there? What was the outcome of that? Well, the Pershing versus Panther duel almost didn't happen because what happened was on his way through the city on the second day, March 6th, 74 years ago, right today, Clarence was at an intersection and he caught sight of a German tank nosing forward into the intersection, then pulling back really fast. He couldn't even get his gun on it. That was Gustav's tank. And Gustav's commander saw this funny looking American tank at the end of the street and he didn't know what to do. So they were hiding behind a building. Clarence knows there's this German tank there. So they start trading. Gunfire. They're just searching for each other. He's waiting to see a ricochet. Okay, there, I hit him. And he's just firing with the machine guns. And then he gets this bright idea. I'm going to shoot through the building just like they used to do to us. I'm going to shoot through the building. So he starts shooting, looking for Gustav's tank. And he notices the building is crumbling. Cologne had been hit by so many airstrikes. It was full of rubble. Five shots later, Clarence brought the building down on Gustav's tank. And he knocked out the tank. The gun was literally knocked off its ring. It couldn't turn, the turret couldn't turn. And that's when Gustav had this epiphany. Why am I fighting for them? I mean, why am I doing my duty to the Third Reich? They blew up the bridge. There's no escaping this city. They sent me here to die. And you know what? I've done my duty long enough. I'm gonna serve myself. I have a duty to myself to stay alive. And he got out, ran away and he would be captured and it would save his life. But that duel, the first duel held up Clarence's tank. And somebody else went forward, two Sherman tanks, and the results were quite disastrous. They were going to the cathedral, they were about to win the battle, and an ambush took place. Tell
0: us about that ambush.
1: Well, it's known as the cathedral duel, the cathedral tank duel. These two Sherman tanks, and one of them had this amazing guy we meet, his name's Carl Kellner, 26 years old from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He's a tank commander on this Sherman. And victory is in sight. The cathedral's at the end of the street. He reaches the cathedral. The Rhine is right behind it. You can't go any further. He's won the battle. He's the victor of Cologne. And of all the guys, he deserved it. I mean, this guy had a silver star from Normandy. He had been wounded twice, hospitalized twice. He got a battlefield commission to second lieutenant just two weeks prior. And he had a young fiance, Cecilia, waiting for him back home. So of all the guys to get the honors as a conqueror of Cologne, it was him. He's going up the street. And suddenly the shot rings out. His tank gets hit in the turret, right in the gun mantlet. One shot, second shot, cuts through the rubble, hits the tank. Now you see the tank is steaming, it's smoking. Men are already dead inside. And the cameramen film the whole thing. They film Carl Kellner coming out, they film his gunner coming out. His gunner dives headfirst from the Sherman's turret. We're talking eight feet from the top headfirst to the ground because the terror was so much that this German tank had shot him twice. Maybe it's going to shoot him three times. Maybe it's going to catch into fire. Carl rolls over the back of the turret. And when you see him in the film, he's missing his right leg. His right leg is is torn off and his pants are literally smoking. Well, the cameramen finally put their cameras down. Andy Rooney was one of them, the future CBS journalist. They go and they pick Kellner up, drag him to a shell hole, set him down, and he bleeds to death right there in front of their eyes. So one hour before the battle is won, less than a mile before victory, someone has claimed the life of Carl Kellner and Julian Patrick, his driver, who's sitting there from Kentucky. His eyes are open. He's dead in the driver's seat. And Cecil Morris, their their gunner or the loader is in pieces in the turret, never going back to Texas. And so somebody's got to deal with these guys. Somebody's got to deal with this this panther tank, it was a panther. It pulled from a tunnel, it had laid an ambush and it parked itself right in front of the cathedral, daring anyone to come forward.
0: And that's what happened to Clarence. Clarence was the guy that dared to come forward.
1: Yeah, Clarence said, send me. And there's a biblical verse. It's, you know, who shall I send? Who will go forth for us? And, and the response was, send me. And Clarence really embodied that. And I really, it, it's selfless spirit, somebody's got to do it send me. And the Persian crew took off down that street and they were coming up a parallel street. This Panther tank was watching the two Shermans it had killed, waiting for the next American tank it could could destroy. Inside that Panther, they had vowed to fight to the last round, but they did it without saying it. They just parked themselves there and were ready to go. So Clarence is coming up a parallel street. The cameraman puts himself in the building, aiming down at the Panther. He's about to capture the coolest viral video of World War II. And in that time that it took Clarence's tank to get up there, the Panther commander, who was a diehard and a veteran, he decided, they're not coming this way, I'm watching. I'm going to turn my gun to the right, to the empty intersection, and I'm going to wait there and see who appears there. And that's where Clarence was headed. And Clarence and his gunner, and his driver, had concocted a plan He said, listen, we're going to go out, we're going to nose into the intersection, we're going to shoot him once, and then you back us out of there. Because he had this understanding, Germans tanks often don't die in the first shot. Well, the driver says, okay. And as soon as the driver breaches that intersection and lays eyes on that Panther, he sees himself looking down the muzzle of that gun. And he sees his life about to end. And he stomps on the gas. And he throws the Pershing tank out into the middle of the intersection. And that's where we were so lucky. We had Clarence Schmoyer at the gun that day. Because he knew... He didn't have time to aim. Milliseconds. So he just fired. He had his sights set. He had lowered his gun. He had turned it to the right in preparation for this moment. He hit the Panther in the back and the shock rattled the German crew inside. The German gunner didn't squeeze off around. Instead, that terror struck the men and the commander came out. Next thing, the driver comes out and they start pouring out of the tank. But it's not over because there's five guys in a German tank. If one of them reaches up for that trigger in his dying gasp, I mean, they're already fanatical. They already are fighting when other German soldiers are surrendering or swimming the Rhine to escape the Americans, these guys came to die. And so Clarence moved his sights forward, shot it a second time, moved his sights forward, shot it a third time, he made it burn. He made that crew flee. Four out of five of them actually got out of the tank and they ran away. And he saved his crew's life. So they backed up and they're sitting there just rattled. When the cameraman comes down, and he says, I got it all. You know, you're going to be the new heroes of World War II.
0: And this is this, this, this the picture taken after
1: that? The cover of the book shows a, a frame taken from that film. And I'll, I'll give you this film for art of manliness because... It's something people have to see, but the cover of Spearhead shows this crew literally five minutes after they had stared death in the face, and you see, you see the bow gunner Smoky Smoky Davis. He's literally chain smoking a cigarette. You see the driver Woody McVeigh. He's got this thousand-yard stare. You see the the commander Bob Early, and he can't stop fidgeting with his helmet. You see Clarence, and he looks like he's seen a ghost. Clarence has his, just his curly hair. And then you see this one guy, John DeRiggi, the loader, and he's got this kind of cool, debonair, smug kind of grin. And I was wondering why was he? Why is he so composed? The reason is because the loader didn't have a periscope. The loader didn't see anything. The loader <laughs> never saw how close they were to dying.
0: I also like—you're um, supposed to wear a helmet as a tanker. And they looked like football helmets, like Spalding actually, they use Spalding
1: football helmets. They're leather head helmets. Clarence never wore a helmet, and <laughs> that was his thing. He That was his thing, and when you came out of the tank, you were always supposed to have a steel pot on. And Clarence would get yelled at again and again. He got ripped apart by his colonel for not, not wearing his helmet. The best gunner of World War II is, uh, is kind of a misfit in that regard. And by the way, he told me to say hello tonight. I actually asked him, I said, hey, can I tell the people how you felt about killing that panther 74 years ago? Can I, what, how, you're, you're a badass, Clarence. You're an American badass. What did you think? He said, well, you know, I'm proud I did my job. I'm like, wait a second, you vanquished this crew. You avenged your buddies who had died in the most terrible way by the hand of this fanatical German crew. He said, well, you know, it, it, was, it was my job. It was what I was supposed to do. All these years later, he said he can't forget it. It stays with him, and yet he wouldn't brag about it, even for me to feed to you guys tonight to get you all pumped up. He, that's how humble this man is, and that's how the war stays with him. Well, that's,
0: I've noticed that with all these World War II vets. When you ask them about, you know, Dick Winters or these you know, big-time heroes, you ask them, "How did you do it?" Like, I mean, were you proud? And he's like, "No, was just I was just doing my job." That, that's the, that's like their go-to response: "I'm just doing my job."
1: Yeah, because they knew everybody on their block, everybody in their town, everybody that they knew was over there doing the same job. It, today's military is different. We have a very small fighting force. I've heard it's like 5%, less than, less than half a percent, 0.5%, 0.05% of our population. So less than 1% is doing the fighting force. Back then, the percentage was ridiculous. So it was easier to be humble about that because everybody did it. Today, our guys are the tip of the spear and they're, they're very special. They're very exclusive, actually.
0: So what happened to Clarence after Cologne?
1: Cologne was not the end for him, and he had he had survived this. There was more to come. There was Germany, deeper into Germany, the heart of Germany, and there was one last battle that I just, again, we watched him battling a German army in Mons, Belgium. We watched him fighting through the Battle of the Bulge. We watched him fighting their way to Cologne. We watched him fighting in Cologne, and now they get a last mission, which is end the war. What is the heart of Germany? Is it Berlin or is it the Ruhr Valley? The Ruhr Valley is where Germany was producing all of its munitions. It's where the coal was coming from, the steel and the bullets. And Eisenhower decided, let's let the Russians take the symbolic capital. Let let them get Hitler in Berlin. We're going to go for the Ruhr. We've got to cut off the lifeline. And so he sent these two fabled armored divisions, the second armored hell on wheels and the third armored on the deepest drive of the war for them to encircle the Ruhr. Clarence's unit spearhead made the longest drive, 100 miles in 24 hours, all behind enemy lines to come up from the south, get behind the Ruhr. They encircled it, but there was one town they had to take. It's a town called Paderborn. And this town was where all the rail rail lines would go through the rail yard there into the Ruhr pocket. All the communication flowed to the Ruhr pocket. The Germans troops would come in and out through Paderborn. There was a problem, though. Paderborn was the home of the German armor schools. So the Wehrmacht trained its tankers there. The SS trained its tankers there. They experimented on new tanks there. And that's where they had still a large concentration of tanks at the very end of the war. Germany only had 200 tanks left on the Western Front, but they had more than 20 at Paderborn. And those 20, the instructors, battle-scarred instructors got in. They came out and they said, we're going to defend Paderborn to the end. On Easter morning, April 1st, Clarence and his buddies line up on a hill. It's like a scene out of Braveheart or a movie. The sun is rising. The chaplain is going from tank to tank. The men are coming out of their hatches, taking off their hats. Some are coming down to the ground and taking a knee. And he's giving a blessing at each tank. The armored infantry loads up and they're about to charge across two miles of open field filled with shell holes. Shell holes filled with German soldiers with Panzerfaust. They're going alongside of an airfield On that airfield, all the Luftwaffe flak guys no longer have planes to shoot at. They've got tanks, so they lower their cannons. They're twenty millimeters. They're going to blast away at the tanks as they come across the field. And to compound it, what's at the end for us? Two miles away, we're going to attack the Paderborn rail yard. And who's waiting in the rail yard? Tiger tank, Panthers. The German armor cadre is waiting for us. So. It's the ultimate showdown, and that's the last battle Clarence would fight.
0: And he took care of it.
1: He took care of it. He fought the most veteran German tank crew. The one that scared him the most was waiting for him there because they were. They were these were the guys who were teaching everybody else. And so he has an incredible showdown there. Not even going to spoil it, but the hardest battle was the last for him.
0: So after the war, Clarence survived. What was his life like as a, as a veteran?
1: Well, he came home and he thought, I'm going to take a couple weeks off. I'm going to decompress. And his buddy said, hey, all the boys are coming home. You're never going to get a job now. So he got a job five days after he came home, put all of his army stuff in a chest, married his wife within a year, and he never looked back. And he just bottled up World War II. And for the next 50 or 60 years, never wore a veteran hat, never put a license plate on his car that said Purple Heart. He went incognito and tried to put the war behind him. And he didn't him.
0: even get a homecoming.
1: No, he came home And he was to, a hero.
0: Like this guy was did some of the, the most amazing things here.
1: Yeah, he came home to an empty train station and empty streets and he just walked up the door and knocked on his parents' door and walked inside.
0: So you mentioned uh, Gustav and Clarence. They, they crossed paths in Cologne, but they didn't know each other were in the tanks. But they crossed paths again, this time as old men. How did that happen? What was the connection there?
1: Well, when I sat down with Clarence that first day, he starts bombarding me with, well, I had to pull the stories out of him, but he's bombarding me with these golden nuggets. Wait a second. You fought at the Nazi Fort Knox, as they called Paderborn. Wait a second. You knocked out two tanks in Cologne. Wait a second. You shivered through the battle of the bulge when you have tiger tanks driving in front of you and you're hiding in the woods. I'm like, wait a second. And then he says, oh yeah. And I'm in touch with the German I fought against. His name's Gustav Schaefer. And I'm thinking about meeting him in the spring. I said, oh my gosh, this is a chance to tell it from both sides. What are the odds? What are the odds that Clarence, who was one of the last four men from his company, you're talking a 200-man company, there's four left. Gustav is the last survivor of 160. We're talking 70-some years later. What are the odds that this is actually going to happen? And I got to tag along with him, went back to Cologne March 2013, and watched as Gustav approached from one end of the cathedral square Clarence approached from the other, the big American in the gray army jacket, the little German in the black trench coat. And you get to see these two enemies shake hands. And Clarence leaned to him and he said, the war is over, we can be friends now. And Gustav said, yeah, yeah, gut. (laughs) And they actually went back to the hotel. They both got these Kolsch beers, amazing beer in Cologne. And they started telling stories. They started cracking jokes. And they had the same sense of humor. Clarence said, did your tank have a refrigerator in it? And Gustav said, "Because Clarence said, because ours did, which is a total lie." <laughs> and Gustav said, "Yeah, yeah, ours did too. You know, only in winter time."
0: <laughs> they also like did, did they have a bathroom?
1: Yeah, a yeah. Clarence said, "Do they? Does yours have a toilet? Because ours did." And Gustav said, "Of course it did." He said, "In the shell holes, empty <laughs> shell casings. I'm sorry, in the shell casing. God, I butchered that." Um, and then we find out that Gustav's favorite hobby is Google Earth. He's 90 years old. And his favorite thing is to surf the world from his computer because he lived alone. His wife had died. And he said, Clarence, he'd already stalked Clarence. He said, Clarence, what is that silver car that's out in front of your house I see every day? <laughs> and Clarence said, oh, it's a, it's a Dodge, this or that. And Gustav said, I can only see so far with my satellite. What is it like inside your house? And these two came away as buddies. They went back to the place they fought. They told their stories This is where our tank was. This is where yours was. This is what I was thinking. This is why I was trying to kill you. And they came away as pals, exchanging Christmas cards. They're pen pals, exchanging letters. And yes, they even talked on the computer. They would do Skype together. Clarence on a laptop, Gustav on a desktop, two enemies 5,000 miles apart, 70 years after the fact, looking at each other and saying, how are you doing? How was your day?
0: Well, you mentioned Clarence bottled this up Um, after the war, didn't talk about it. Uh, Was this moment, this exchange... With Gustav, was it therapeutic for him? Like, was it something that he needed to do to sort of fight those demons that he had?
1: He really did. He uh, he had no one to talk to. And for for s- some veterans, talking about it is a way to release it. There's a couple ways to deal with, with trauma and stress. And one is to be able to talk about it. Another is to go back to where it happened and to reframe what had happened. To kind of, if you're, it's like any phobia, if you're afraid of um, heights, you got to work at trying to get yourself up somewhere high. Well, for these guys, their trauma was that intersection, that place where they had exchanged bullets, that, that those streets of Cologne. So he went back to the place of his trauma and his, the place of his nightmares. And he stood there with his enemy side by side, and they talked through what had happened. And he came home and he used to have nightmares. He used to have all the night tremors. And suddenly he's able to sleep a full night. Suddenly he's able to talk about the war. Suddenly he's able to tell his stories to me
0: it took 70 you know long, 70 years for that to happen you know Adam as you got to work with Clarence Clarence is still alive you actually a part of the book tour you got tell us about that cuz i thought this was really fun you're telling me about so he's how he's 95
1: 95 years old going you, strong you did
0: this in the Philadelphia, in Pennsylvania you made Clarence part of the book tour tell us about that cuz that's a lot of fun
1: well Clarence has given me so much over 6 years i've worked with him 4 years researching 2 years actually writing the book And I thought, how can I give back to a guy that has given me everything, his stories and his memories and gone back to the battle? I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna bring a Sherman Tank to his first book signing. And so (laughs) Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Midtown Scholar Bookstore, Sherman Tank comes up from Gettysburg and parks in front of the store. Clarence is able to stand there and he's tapping the old gun barrel with his cane. Then we're like, let's double down on this. Clarence is up in Boston. He's going to the USS Constitution Museum for a book signing. He's expecting an Uber to take him to the signing. Rob Collings at the American Heritage Museum, I called him up, I said, I need your Sherman tank. And Rob brought it in. Clarence walks out of the uh, uh, residence inn and there's a Sherman tank, not an Uber. And he gets on back and he climbs into the turret and we got the Boston police to clear the way. We got an honor guard from the army and hundreds of people lined the streets waving little American flags as he drove through Boston to his book signing on the back of a Sherman tank. And then we decided, let's just surprise the heck out of him. Now he knows that these Sherman tanks come. We're gonna wait till he goes home to Allentown and he's in his, in his row house and he's just unwinding from the book tour. Now he never got a homecoming, right? So we said, let's give him a homecoming in his hometown and let's surprise him in a way he's never gonna understand. He hears a sound at 10 o'clock in the morning. He tells his daughter, that sounds like a Sherman tank. She's like, dad, you're crazy. This is, this is Allentown, you know, these narrow streets. And, and they the cops even had to clear some of the junky cars off the street. You know, they had to tow some of them because it was kind of a rough neighborhood. And sure enough, we had a Sherman tank come down the street. Clarence opens the door, he steps out. There's a 33-ton tank idling at, in front of his doorstep. There is the honor guard from the city of Allentown police. There are 75 of his neighbors Trampling the other neighbors' yards, just to get a glimpse of him, and he climbs on for that parade through his town, where two hundred people were waiting at his VFW to give him a true homecoming. That homecoming never got seventy-five years ago. So we've
0: what I love about this book is you have all these other subplots going along. We didn't talk about that add add to the story, the richness of the story. But I'm curious, after all your time working on this book and interacting with Clarence, like what's been your your big takeaway. How is how has this book changed you as a writer?
1: You know, I, I think one thing I always say about the guys I write about, I call them the anti-Kardashians, because it kind of sickens me to have a society where, you know, it's it's okay now to, to say this is how rich I am and look how hot I am, and look where I am, and you're not. I'm on a private jet and you're slumming it. It's this rub-in-your-face attitude that's just disgusting. And you look at this generation who went away to war, left their homes and went away sometimes for two years. And then you see a guy like Clarence who saddles up in this tank and he's going to lead the way. And he knows the Germans have their crosshairs set on the road he's about to go down. And he knows the only way he's going to live through the day is if he can turn the tables on him somehow, if he can get the first shot off, even though their gun is already waiting for him. You see this guy who was willing to die for his country, who's willing to die for the people behind him. And you say, this is the ultimate unselfishness. This is the ultimate generosity. This is the ultimate love. And it's, it's the antidote to everything wrong in our society. And it happened all those years ago. And we can't afford to forget it. So he's changed the way I look at life. I, I kick myself sometimes when I do that stupid stuff on Instagram. So he's changing me. And I hope his story will open eyes and make people say, my God, we had the best warriors in the world. We had the best tankers in the world. And thank God we had Clarence Schmoyer. Well,
0: Adam, this has been a great conversation. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Gosh, Brett, it's been great to be part of the Art of Manliness family this long. And thanks to Magic City Books for having us. And thank you to everybody out there who's reading these books and celebrating these heroes with us. Um, it's, It's a team effort. We're all on the same team. We're trying to see that these men are not forgotten.
0: My guest today was Adam Makos. He is the author of the book, Spearhead. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about his work at adammakos.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash spearhead where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website, artofmanliness.com, where you can find all of our podcast archives. There's over 490 there. And you can also see the thousands of articles written over the years on everything from personal finance, fitness, relationships, how to be a better husband, better father, you name it, we've got it. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think will get something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the AOM Podcast, podcast, but put what you've heard into action.